2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Sorry, I'm not there. Now I am. To this end, and he's referring, Paul is referring to the previous verse that he wants the saints to be glorified when Jesus comes back in his second coming. To this end, that the saints might be glorified, we always pray for you. I'm sorry that Jesus will be glorified in us. To this end, that Jesus will be glorified in us, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to make this profound truth our prayer today, that we would, with Paul, always pray for this sort of thing, that to this end, for your glory in us, for you, when you return to be marvel at among your people, that you, God, would make us worthy of our calling, that you would make us worthy of the bar that you've set for us, the path that you've set before us, and that you, God, would fulfill every Resolve every commitment, every decision that we've made for you to do good. And that every work of faith will be fulfilled by your power. Lord, this is something we cannot do. That's why we're asking you in prayer. We're depending on you in prayer to do what we cannot to fulfill your work in us. So that as we work, it would be good work. It would be work not just of necessity or burden, but work of faith and of joy. So that when we do our good work, your name might be glorified in us and you might be glorified in us and that we would be changed and sanctified and look more like you, Jesus. And all this will happen because of grace, because of the grace of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us now and make us worthy to do what is good and to do it by faith, and to do it by grace, and to do it for your glory alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we're looking at this idea of image, the image of God, that, that He's made us in His image to work. And of course, our banner text for these past few weeks has been Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, 28. Genesis 20, chapter 1, verse 27 says, God made man in His own image. In his own likeness, he created man. Male and female, he created them. God is a creator, and he created us in his image, which means he created us to be fruitful. He says, you're blessed because you're you're alive. I created you, so you're blessed. And to bless you, I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to tell you to multiply, and I'm going to tell you to have dominion over the earth. I'm going to make you like a small Creator, a little ruler under my authority, you're going to be ruling the earth under my authority. And in Genesis 2.15, he told Adam and Eve, take this garden, the Garden of Eden, and to us, he's given the whole world, and he says, work and keep the garden. And we looked at those two Hebrew words. Work is the word abad, means to serve, to worship, to get underneath God's authority and worship Him by our work. And he says, and I've given you The job to keep or guard the garden, which is the Hebrew word shamar, which means you're an authority over things. I put you in charge. You're responsible. You're stewards. So we're underneath 
the job as servants and we're over the work as stewards to be faithful. And so God has told us, just in review from last week's sermon, that work is a gift. It's a blessing. It's a blessing in disguise for many of us because some of us feel mostly the pain and the burdens of work. We don't enjoy it all the time, but it is a gift of God. You're blessed to have work. So if you have work, you should be saying, thank you, God, for my work. Thank you for the boss that I have. Thank you for the people I have to serve. Even though it's tough, I thank you because it is a gift. And I didn't always see work as a gift, of course. Growing up as children, we often see work just as a, as a chore. And our parents give us work to do. And they're trying to teach us a good work ethic and that sort of thing. My dad was a hard worker and he taught me to work hard. And I'm thankful now for the things I dreaded back then, like pulling nails out of wood or changing the oil in the car. I'm grateful that I can do these things myself now. To work hard, to make money, to give generously to God and other people. He taught me these things, and so now I see it as a blessing. But work isn't just blessed, it's also cursed. Because we looked at last week, the the ache of the curse upon work that happened when Adam and Eve took matters into their own hands. And they said, like many of us say in our jobs, or people we know, they would say, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I don't like people over me in authority. And so I want to be my own authority. I want to make my own hours. I want to be self-employed in the ultimate way. And Adam and Eve said, we're not going to do what God told us. We want to be like God in a way he has not allowed us. We're going to cross that boundary and take that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they sinned. And the world then became broken and cursed. And God put a curse upon work. Remember, work is not a curse Work is a blessing, but a curse was put upon work and relationships in Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Through painful toil, you will now eat of it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles. It's going to be bloody work. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat of the food until you return to the ground. It's going to be sweaty work. And when you return to the ground from which you were taken, in death, there will be tears. There's blood, there's sweat, there's tears because of this curse upon work. I experienced weeds and thorns growing up as my dad told me to do work. Some of my earliest memories are working in the garden, pulling weeds. Uh, At one point we purchased a plot of land that we eventually built a house on out in the country. And we had a large garden. It wasn't like a little small plot, but it was like a garden as big as this room. And one Christmas my dad told us, kids, hey, we got some presents under the tree for you. So go ahead and open those up and, and then... Don't play with them because we're going to actually go out to the garden on Christmas morning and pull weeds out of the onion garden. That's what we're going to do this morning. But don't worry, it won't take too long. You know, we're going to go out of town to see your grandparents. We've got to get those weeds pulled. You think you cry when you chop onions? Try having to pull weeds out of the onion garden on Christmas Day when you're a kid. There were a lot of tears that day. But out we went to the garden to pull weeds. So thank you, Dad, for teaching me a good work ethic. But timing is important, Dad. You know, timing is everything. And so I had to look beyond just my dad how to, to work well. I had to look beyond that because there was pain in the work. There was, there was blood, sweat, and tears. And I had to look towards Jesus to teach me how to be balanced in work and to find work and rest and relationship and work those all together as we juggle our work and our family and our faith and our, our health. Those things are important to juggle. And so that was the third thing we looked at last week was reimagining work and seeing it redeemed through Jesus. That Jesus is recreating us, like Ephesians 4 says, he's remaking us in his image in true righteousness and holiness to work truly and righteously and well. And we saw how Jesus himself, God became a human on the earth and he worked perfectly. He showed us the perfect way to work. 
He did all that his father desired, all that his father required. He knew when to rest. He knew when to work. And then because of the failure of us to do our work well, because we make idols out of work and we overwork or we underwork, we make idols out of laziness or too much productivity. Jesus took all of that sin, all of that failure, and he took the curse of work upon himself. He took the blood, sweat, and the tears upon himself. He literally took the thorns and thistles upon his head and that crown that they fashioned for him. He, he literally took the nails in his hands and bled for us. He paid for us with his own tears in the garden as he cried out with loud cries and tears for you and for me that we would be redeemed from the curse upon the earth and upon ourselves and upon our work and relationships. He came and crushed the, crushed the head of Satan, the serpent, and he drove back sin and he reversed the curse upon this earth to give us life again in his new life. When he rose from the dead, he said, now you're alive and you can work in a living way, in a joyful way, in a, in a significant way that will last for eternity. And so Jesus has taught us how to work. And that work is not a four-letter word. Well, it is, but it's not just a four-letter word, if you know what I'm saying. Some of you younger people, you know, many curse words are four-letter words. Work is not a curse. It's a blessing. And Jesus teaches us, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says in verse 3, that we have been given work of faith to do and labors of love to do. And that we're to do that with hopeful steadfastness. So let's think about our work today in this, this lens that 1 and 2 Thessalonians often presents, and especially the, the scripture we read today, 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12, teach us that we're to think of work not just as a, dr- a drudgery and a burden, but as a blessing and something we can do by faith. God is fulfilling in us and creating in us desires and resolves and promises and, and abilities to work by faith and by His grace. And so today we're looking at not just the theme of work, but how can you work in a faithful way, a faith-filled way, a way that depends on grace and not your own effort. So the first thing we'll see is that work is not just a four-letter word, but work is something we can resolve to sanctify or to set apart for the Lord. Because work has been set apart or sanctified by the blessing of Jesus himself. So Jesus has blessed work for us. He's given us work to do and he's set set it apart or made it holy so that we can consider whatever we lay our hands to, whatever's not illegal or immoral, let's just say whatever's good work, we can do it in a way that would honor him and bless him. So some of us have been taught in the church, or maybe you've just grown to think this uh, on your own somehow, that what is Christian work would be something that pastors do or evangelists who go out and share the gospel or missionaries who serve cross-culturally and they travel across the seas to other lands. And, and we think of the work that's Christian work as something that happens inside the walls of the church building. And then we think of the rest of the work that we do as somehow secular or worldly work or work that's less than spiritual. And we get this idea that there's Christian work and then there's worldly work. And... Yet I want to share with you today some thoughts on that, that Jesus has blessed all work to be sanctified for his glory and for our good. And we can think about the Great Commission, which is that passage at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, I want you to go out into all the world. As you go to the nations, as you're going out there to the the nations, I want you to make disciples. And I want you to teach them everything I've taught you and baptize them into my name and the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and I'm going to be with you forever. I'm right there with you in that task of preaching the gospel and making disciples. That sounds like a really spiritual job, right? 
baptizing, teaching the Bible, making disciples. That's a very spiritual work. And it is, of course. It takes the Holy Spirit's power. Jesus is with us in that work. But that commandment, that great commission, is rooted in and it reflects a great commandment earlier, much earlier in history that God gave people in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when he says, Okay, I'm blessing you too. And I'm sending you two to be fruitful as well and to multiply. It's kind of like the Great Commission, but it's basically whatever you lay your hands to. I want you to form this earth and fill it with good things. I want you to shape it and subdue it. God gave us a blessing way before the Great Commission that's called the cultural mandate. We're to go out into all culture, into all the world, and the mandate or the commandment or the commission is be fruitful in your work and be blessed in your work and do it for my glory, God says. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, well, I'm going to be a spiritual Christian and just preach the gospel and teach the Bible. You probably have to do some work to make some money and live in the world, and God wants you to do that. He blesses that. So whatever you do, Jesus is sanctifying work. And he's also sanctifying it not just by his commandments, but he actually came and gave us his own example for work. He didn't just tell you to work and me to work, but he came in the form of a man. God became human, and he became a carpenter. Jesus, of course, came to seek and save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many and to to build the kingdom of God. But he didn't just come to build the kingdom. He came to build chairs and tables too and make money and earn his living. And so God got splinters in his hands, most likely. He sweat. He had sawdust all over him when he came home. And his mother said, boy, brush yourself off before you sit down for dinner tonight. Jesus was a worker. He was a manual laborer. He was a blue-collar carpenter before he struck out into his ministry of preaching and teaching and healing. Jesus sanctified work by his own work, by his own example. Think of how other professions in the Bible are sanctified just by how often they're mentioned and used as examples to give us spiritual lessons. God often goes to the worldly work, as we would say, to say, look at how this job is done. I want you to act the same way in your more spiritual-minded work of making disciples and thinking of the Bible and teaching it and those sort of things. Think of the the job of being a shepherd. Many shepherds in the Bible. Moses was a great shepherd. For 40 years, Moses was out there with the sheep in the wilderness learning how to be patient and protective. And then God called him to deliver the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery. And he became, as Psalm 80 says, the shepherd of Israel. The lessons he learned in the fields with the sheep translated into his leadership for what we would think of as a more spiritual job. Think about King David. He was a shepherd. God called him out of the sheepfolds to lead the people as the king, the political leader of Israel. And the lessons he learned led him to write the most famous psalm. And what's the most famous psalm in the world? Psalm, come on, 23, right? Doesn't everybody love Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd in the Gospels. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. I mean, think about shepherding. If we didn't have shepherds, we wouldn't know about the good shepherd. Or Moses would have never learned to lead and neither would have David. This is ordinary work and it's good work. And God's blessed it. He sanctified it. And he's pointing to work like that to show you how to be a good Christian. Think about how the angels came and announced the birth of Jesus... To who? Shepherds who were watching their fields by night. I mean, he loved shepherds, right? Yes. Nothing wrong with being a shepherd. It's good work. It's godly work. It's sanctified. There's a quote that I 
have always loved from a missionary. His name is C.T. Studd. I love the quote half because his name is so cool, C.T. Studd. And then I love the quote for what it actually says, which is, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last, right? And we think, well, that means I've got to be a missionary and go overseas, or I've got to be a pastor or an evangelist or something very spiritual, because that's the only thing that will last, right? Well, not according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and also earlier in Corinthians, um, other passages that talk about the work we do. But it says, whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, but you can include anything in that, because whatever you do. So what do you do on a daily basis? You eat, you drink, you juggle the big bowling ball of work, right? That's a big part of your life. Whatever you do, including your work, do it all for the glory of God. Amen. So whatever is done for Christ will last. Well, are you doing your work for Christ? Then it will last. God will reward that. He will bless that. He will um, be glorified in that work if you do it for his glory. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. That's going to be just uh, after Thessalonians. So if you're in Thessalonians, you can hold your place there. Flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, just two books over. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 1 says this, Paul writing to Timothy, his young apprentice in the faith, so he calls him my child, even though he's not biologically related. This is his, his, you know, he's the mentor here. And so his young disciple Timothy, he says, I want you to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Being strengthened by food would sound kind of worldly, or strengthened by exercise would sound, you know, non-spiritual. But we're talking spiritual stuff here. Be strengthened by grace. By the grace of Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. It sounds very spiritual still, very godly, right? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Still sounds very spiritual. Share in suffering. You're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. As you preach this word, you're going to suffer like I'm suffering. Paul's writing this very letter from prison. And he's saying, look at me suffering. I'm an apostle. A very spiritual job. A very spiritual calling. But then what does he do? He then roots his command and his encouragement in three very worldly sounding jobs. Soldiering, athletes, and farmers. He says in verse 4, not only are you to be a good soldier of Jesus, but you wouldn't even know what that means unless you looked at soldiers in the world and learned from them. So look at these soldiers that I've commissioned to do work of protecting nations and that sort of thing. And, and learn from them because no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So learn something from the soldier, Timothy. Learn that they have a focus to do what the commander tells them. And learn from that as you follow Jesus. And then he says learn from the athlete. The athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So learn about the hard work, the training that goes in, the dedication, the focus that an athlete has as you think about being a follower of Jesus and suffering for him and working hard for him. And then learn from the farmer in verse 6, the hardworking farmer who has dirt under his nails and his faces windburn. He's got these calluses all over. Learn from him because he's the one who gets the first share of the crops. He's the one that planted. He's the one that worked hard. He gets to taste the sweetness of the first fruit. So learn about spiritual things, Timothy, from what we might consider unspiritual things because God has actually blessed work, whether you're a soldier, an athlete, or a farmer, or anything else. He's blessed it and said, do your job well. Do it to my glory. And it will even enlighten and illuminate spiritual things. So I want you to think about your own job for a moment. Probably not many of you are farmers or soldiers or athletes. Maybe you are. 
But you probably have another job that's your main calling. Think about that job. What is it that you do? What is it that you want to do? After your training is done, your education is completed, how does that job reflect the goodness of God? How does that job show the glory of God? How are you going to be glorified in Christ through your work? Because the verse that we read at the beginning today says, Paul's prayer and my prayer for us is that we would be sanctified or glorified in Christ as we do every good work. Every good work of faith. So think about your job. This past week at Table Talk, we spoke about our jobs and how they fulfilled the great cultural mandate of Genesis 1. How is your job fruitful? How is it multiplying uh, the effectiveness of, of uh, God's will in the world? How is your job showing dominion over the earth? And how are you serving and also stewarding well what God has given you? Think about your job. There's something about your job that can teach Christians something about Jesus and being a good, faithful follower of Jesus. There's something about your job that if you began describing it to us, we would say, wow, that encourages me to be more faithful to God. That gives God glory, and it shows me that God's making you more in His image through your work. That's what the Bible promises, and if we're reflective on that, we will begin to see treasures because God has blessed work and made it good. Amen. Now, the second thing that we're going to see from this text in 2 Thessalonians is that work must be independence upon God. We must depend in all of our work upon the power and the energy of Jesus Christ. We must depend and work to be energized by Jesus, by His grace in particular, according to what 2 Thessalonians and other scriptures teach us. So look at what 2 Thessalonians says again, chapter 1. It says, God will make us worthy of His calling. He will fulfill every resolve for good, and He will fulfill every work of faith by his what? You with me again? 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11. How is he going to fulfill his work in you? By his? Check it out. Verse 11. He's going to make you faithful and a good worker by his power. So that the name of Jesus may be glorified in you. And you in him according to the? Grace. He's, he's going to empower you by his grace. What does that mean? Let's break it down for a few minutes and talk about it. Psalm 127 says, Unless Yahweh, the Lord, unless Yahweh builds the house, it's builders' labor in vain. Unless the Lord is right there with the watchman who's on the city walls watching the city to protect it, it's watchmen wait in vain. He says, you're rising up early with your alarm clock and going to bed super late at night in vain if you're not doing it with the Lord alongside of you. He says, vain you rise up early and go to bed late because the Lord gives sleep to those he loves. Not just sleep, but he gives contentment and satisfaction and rest, like a deep soul rest to those he loves. So, are you working by the power and grace of God? Are you working with the Lord at your side, building what you're building and watching what you're watching? That's the beginnings of what it means to work by grace. What about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10? He says something that sounds very similar to... God's going to fulfill His work in you by grace or by His power. He says something very similar to 2 Timothy chapter 1 or chapter 2 that we just read. That you, like a good soldier, will be strengthened by grace. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 15 verse 10. But by the grace of God, say it with me, by the grace of God. Say it with me, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, that's identity. I am an apostle, Paul's saying. My identity is an apostle, and I'm an apostle. My identity is 
by the grace of God. I didn't earn this. I didn't have a great resume. And God said, well, yes, you went through all the hoops. Now you're an apostle. It was simply by grace. It was a gift. It was a special favor of God. It was his goodness alone that made Paul an apostle. I am my identity by grace. And his grace toward me was not in vain. That means his grace toward me was actually powerful and effective. It's doing something. His grace is doing something in my life. It's not just that I get to call myself an apostle and wear a really cool hat like the Pope or something. It's not just that I get a title. I'm actually doing something. What am I doing? On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the others. And he's talking about other apostles. He's like, hey, look, I'm the hardest working apostle you'll ever meet. And the reason I'm working, the power that's motivating me, is the grace of God in me. He says, I was not an apostle. I was not working hard. But the grace of God that is in me has done this. See, all of our identity, whatever you do for your job, it's a gift. You should be thanking God. Thank you for this gift of what you've called me to. All the things you do on that job, the work you do, the hard work, the blood, sweat, and tears, that's done by grace. Because God is with you. Because God's building. Because God's watching. Because God is in you, encouraging you, energizing you. When you do the best you can at your job and then you can't do any more, you hit that wall, you're, you're tired, you, 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 you're frustrated, you can't go, you've hit that ceiling, you've got to that point by grace... And it's grace that's going to help you deal with the anxiety and the frustrations. When you hit the point that you can't go any further, and when you hit the point of thorns and thistles in your work or blood, sweat, and tears, it's grace that will help you to still be content in your work. Amen. And go on and still say, my identity is secure because I'm a believer in Christ and He loves me. I can still enjoy the work even when it's hard. I can still sing while I work and whistle while I work. I can still appreciate the people even though they drive me crazy. I can still say, thank you, God. For the people I have to serve or the people that are my boss over me, I can still say thank you because he's with me. He's empowering me to do that. He's helping me to trust him for my unknown future and not be anxious about it. Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13 say that we should work out our own salvation. And that sounds very scary, doesn't it? Work out your own salvation. That sounds very Arminian if you know theology. You know, Work out your own salvation. That doesn't sound Presbyterian at all. It's like, what? It's all on me? I thought it was by grace. Well... Just read the next sentence. Yes, it is. Work out your own salvation sounds very much like it's your responsibility, and it is. It's your responsibility to work hard and to, even in salvation, do the work that God's called you to do. But here's the rest of the verse. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So you're not working by fear because it's all about you and it all rides on you. It, it all depends on you. No, you're working with fear and trembling because God is working in you. Hallelujah. Whoa, that's amazing. Like, because God is working on me, I am amazed. I'm, I'm reverent. I trust Him. I'm sober. I'm, I'm just in awe that God is working in me. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work. According to his good pleasure. Amen. See, God is working powerfully in you. His grace is working in you so that you might both will, or as 2 Thessalonians 1 says, resolve, commit, dedicate yourself to every good work, and so that you would work to actually do it. So you make your plans, and it's not just hypothetical, it's actually something you're doing. You're putting your hands to, to the plow, or you're doing your work. That's all by God's grace, it's all by his presence in your life and his work in your life. And you're doing it for his pleasure. Not just because you have to, but because you love him and, and it's glorifying to him. Hallelujah. 
let's talk about these motivations for why we're working. And, and not just the power we get, but why do we do it? What's the inspiration for your work? What's the inspiration for your perspiration? Why do you go and put in such time? I'm sorry, Avery. I know it was a little dad joke there. But what motivates you to work hard despite the blood, sweat, and tears in this cursed world that we live in? What allows you to still see the blessing of work? Well, Colossians reminds us in chapter 3, verse 23. Colossians 3, 23 says, Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord heartily, not unto men. So heartily doesn't just mean like, yeah, go get them. Like, do it in a robust way. But it means like from the heart. Hallelujah. And if you look at the previous verse, he's, he's contrasting and saying, I don't want you to work for just people pleasing. And the word literally is for eye service or like being the slave to someone's eye. People are watching you and you're just working hard because your boss is watching. But as soon as your boss goes on vacation, hey, it's party time in the lab, right? It's party time on the job. Uh, let's close in, t- turn in early for the day, you know, lock up early. Who are you working for? Are you doing it just for the, the sight of other people so they'll applaud you and say, what a hard worker, what a smart person. Are you doing it just for the money or for the approval or for the status? He says, no. Whatever you do, don't do it for men, but do it for the Lord from your heart. From the heart means you do it with fear and sincerity. That's what Colossians 3 teaches us. Do it with a sincere heart in fear of the Lord. And so when people say, hey, really put your back into it, you know, really work hard and just burn the midnight oil. Of course you have to work hard, but are you putting your heart into it? Not just like, are you passionate about your job, but are you dedicating your job and committing it as a worship to God? Are you laying your job on the altar and saying, God, I want this to be my offering to you. My heart's in it. You cannot just go to work as a Christian and just do the job and punch in and out and say, all right, I earned my money. Or even I just made a difference in someone's life. You can't just do that and fulfill Colossians 3, 23. You have to serve the Lord through your work and do it from the heart. Hallelujah. This is where it gets really hard to be a Christian. Like, how can I really pour my heart into my work? I don't enjoy it. I'm in the wrong job. The wrong people are telling me what to do. It's difficult work. It's not productive. I'm not seeing any results. That's where you need the power in the grace of God. That's where you cannot do this by yourself. And Paul's prayer and my prayer for us is... I'm going to pray this regularly for us. That every resolve we have and every good work we launch out to do will be done by God's power, fulfilled by His grace. Amen. Listen to the difference between a Christian at work and someone who is maybe even a smarter person than you, a harder worker than you, and more productive than you. Listen to the difference. I'm not asking you to be lazy and not smart. I'm saying there, is, there are non-Christians out in the world who are doing good work, they're working hard, they're, they're producing a lot of good things. But there's a difference what the Bible calls us to do as we work heartily for the Lord and depending on His power and grace. God doesn't say to you, well, you're more important than the non-Christian because you're smarter or you did better work or you have a better job that's more meaningful. He doesn't say that. He says, it's by grace that I chose you Hallelujah. and called you. It's by grace that I love you. And your identity is first and foremost a child of God. That's why I love you, simply because I love you. It has nothing to do with your work. Now, because I love you, I want you to see your work as a beautiful gift. I want you to see me inviting you. See, I'm calling you. You have a calling. I'm calling you to come and work with me, to partner with me. It's like a father or a mother who says to their child, hey, come to my job today and see what I do. Today is show and tell. Today's, you know, professional day. And you're going to come on a little field trip with mommy or daddy. You're going to watch me work. And I'm going to let you push the buttons. I'm going to let you, you know, pour the chemicals in the test tubes. I'm going to let you, um, you know, s- press send on my email. I'm going to let you take that shovel and dig that hole. 
I'm going to help you. I'm going to put my hands over that with you, and we're going to do it together. That's what God is doing. He's inviting us to work with Him, and He delights to invite us, and He's just simply saying, would you work with pleasure and, and do it for my glory in whatever you do? Whatever job you do, I like what Dallas Willard says, when you go to work, Jesus is the smartest person at your job. Amen. I mean, He's there. He's everywhere. That's right. Don't we recognize that he's the smartest scientist in the lab? He's the smartest student in the class? He's the smartest person in the store when you're selling your items that you're selling? I mean, Jesus, if he's with you and he's in you and he's empowering you, he's, he's full of the wisdom that, that he possesses naturally. He's full of the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge according to Colossians. And so you need to tap into that. You need to rejoice in that. You say, hey, I've got Jesus with me in my work today. So I'm going to do it with my heart. I'm going to put my heart into it. I'm going to do it based on his power and grace. The third thing that we're going to look at today, the last thing from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, is that God is calling us to rest in our work, to find balance between work and rest. And that we must balance all of our work with worshipful rest in Jesus. We must balance our work with a sense of worship while we work and a sense of worship while the rest Hallelujah. begins to, um, when, the, when the rest begins and the work ends. Because that's the divine pattern God's given us in creation. Didn't he give us a, a divine formula? He says there's a seven-day work week, or a seven-day week, but it's not just a seven-day week. It's actually a six-plus-one week. It's the six days you work and one day you rest. It's the six days you do diligent, hard, efficient work. Go at it with all your heart. And then I really want you to put a hard stop to it, and I want you to take a break. I want you to have a Sabbath, which just simply means stop, cease, rest, and worship me. I really want you to have six plus one in your week, not just seven after seven after seven. There's a divine pattern. God himself taught us in creation. Six days I created, and one day I rested. Now, Jesus came and did the same thing. He came into the body of a man. He worked hard for six days, and then he took a Sabbath, and he blessed the Sabbath. Now, sometimes there are things that uh, theologians would call the works of necessity or mercy. Sometimes you have to work on that Sabbath day. Sometimes, um, like Jesus said, your, your ox might fall into the ditch, or let's say your car goes into the, di- into the ditch, and let's say that someone's trapped behind the steering wheel, and you say, but it's Sunday, I can't work today, so I'm going to come back tomorrow, Monday, and we'll really work hard and get you out of there, okay? No, you have a work of necessity and mercy that you have to get that person some help. Or maybe you're a health professional, and you have to go to the hospital and work on Sundays or whatnot. I would encourage you, if at all possible, not to work on Sundays, and to try to plan your work and ask your boss for a day off. But you've got to take a day off. That's the main thing. And it's, it's ideal and it's God's uh, will, generally speaking, that you take a day off where you can worship Him and be with His people. And, and, and do that collectively as, as we do as a church. And have you ever asked, well, why did Jesus rest? He didn't need to. I mean, He was God. Sure, He was in the human form and, of course, He got tired and hungry and all that. So, many of you understand why Jesus rested, but why did God the Father, the Creator, rest after six days. Did He do it simply to show us a pattern so that we would follow? I think maybe it's deeper than that. I think maybe uh, the, the idea that God rested on the, the seventh day was, in fact, because he, he was finding contentment and delight and satisfaction for His own soul, you could say. And, and I think that's what rest really means at the deepest level. Is it's not just inactivity, like, okay, stop working and go to sleep now. Or just sit there still and don't do anything. I think it really means a deep soul rest. A deep soul satisfaction. God worked 
And he said, man, that is so good. The sixth day he created man and woman, he said, no, it's very good. I'm just going to sit back and just enjoy it. I'm just going to enjoy it and delight in my creation. And I want you to be able to do the same thing. I want you to stop working and just sit back and say, what a good God. Work is a gift and rest is a gift. What a good God to give me both of those, to give me that pattern of six plus one. God also tells us in the Ten Commandments, he says, look at my creative pattern of six days of work and one day of rest. But then he also tells us in the Ten Commandments where he says, take a Sabbath day, keep it holy, honor the Sabbath day, work six and rest one. He says, I want you to think back to the Egyptian uh, liberation, the, the Exodus event, because that's also a pattern for you to follow. He says, remember you were slaves to Pharaoh the king who worked you like dogs. He worked you to the bone. He says, more work, harder work, don't stop. He says, I don't care if you're running on fumes. I don't care if you're scrapping and scraping. You're just slaves. Get back to work, slaves. He says, remember those days? For 400 years, you served that Pharaoh. And remember what I did? I liberated you. I gave you freedom. I told you, I told him, let my people go so that they may worship me. I want them to have a break. I want them to enjoy me. And I want to call them into the promised land where they will work. Okay, they're going to be farmers and they're going to be soldiers and they're going to be builders and they're going to be mothers and fathers. And, you know, yes, they will work, but they're going to do it in a new way. Not as slaves, but as children, as redeemed children. So think back to those days. Look at your identity. It's by grace. I liberated you by grace so that you could work by grace and by power. I've given you rest. And when you work and rest, you're saying something to Pharaoh. You're saying, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Look, we get to rest, Pharaoh, because we're not just slaves anymore. We're children of God. When you work hard and then rest well, it's like resistance against the system. It's like resistance against Pharaoh, the king. It's like resistance against the world who's telling you, keep working harder and harder. You're just a slave to your job. That little voice inside you that just keeps driving you onwards to work, work, work. When you say, no, I'm going to actually obey God and rest, you're making a statement. You're protesting the way things are, and you're telling the world the way things should be. And you're telling yourself that God is wiser than us. And and that resting is, is really a matter of faith and trust. And we're recognizing, okay, God, I get it. If I stop working, the world will keep spinning. Everything will not fall apart. And on Monday morning, I can pick up where I left off. And you're still God, and I'm not. Okay, I get it, God. That I can put in all that time, and even if I keep working seven days a week, I'm still never going to be fully satisfied unless I trust you and delight in you and work by grace through faith. So think about the things that tell you in this life to keep working harder and harder. Is it your parents? Is it your boss or the people you respect and want to impress? Is it just your own sense of wanting to accomplish something? Is it your the technology you have in your hands, the screens you have, which say you can always work. You can take your work on the train. You can take your work to the bed with you. You can take your work to the bathroom if you want. Just keep working all the time, wherever you are, however you want to. Just work, work, work. It's getting crazy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, we have to just say enough is enough. I'm going to work hard six days and rest one, and I will be blessed because of it. Yes. When I first married my wife, well, actually, reverse, before I married my wife, um, I was in grad school, like some of you are. I was in seminary, and I was working four jobs. Of course, they were all part-time jobs, but four jobs mm-hmm. while I was in seminary. And I worked seven days a week. I, f- I felt like I had to. How else could I get it done? And then Shannon came along, and she said, I'm going to give you a marriage ultimatum. You guys know what an ultimatum is? It means you do this or else. You do this or hit the road, Jack. She said, if you want this, 
then you have to do this. And she said, what you have to do is take a day off. You have to keep the Sabbath. You have to have a Lord's Day, a day of rest and worship where you don't work. And I said, I can't do that. That's impossible. Look at all this work I have. Look at all the studying I have to do. Look at all the thousands of pages I have to read and the dozens of pages of papers I have to write every week. And look at the jobs I have to do to you know, make a living, to provide for you. And she said, figure it out. You know my wife. No nonsense. Figure it out. If you, if you want to marry me, you're going to keep the Sabbath. And so I figured it out. And it was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing. I said, okay, I'm going to have to learn to work more efficiently. And this is before we even had kids, you know, so... Kids come along, you have to even work more efficiently. And as more responsibilities grow, you have to figure this out. And we can, by God's help, learn to work six days a week. And on that seventh day, it became like an oasis in the desert. For a thirsty, parched man. I was so tired. I was so burned out. And it became a joy to look forward to Sunday when I could take a day off. And just worship God and enjoy Him as He intended. Jesus says to us in Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29... That beautiful promise, that beautiful invitation, come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. You're burdened with work. You're tired. You're putting things on yourself and other people are putting things on you. But come to me, Jesus says, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you to take my yoke upon you. The yoke is not like an egg yoke. It's the bar that the oxen would wear across their strapping shoulders so they could pull the plow. I'm going to put a yoke on you, but it's an easy yoke, Jesus said. It's not a heavy yoke. If you work my way, if you work by my power and grace, if you learn to rest in your work, he says, then you will learn from me that I'm gentle and lowly of heart. I want you to experience the gentle blessing of work. And you will find rest for your souls. Would you come to Jesus and learn by His grace that your identity and your work and all the efforts you make are simply a gift from Him and and it must be leaning on His power and grace to do it well and that you'll learn to trust Him, that He's in control and you can rest in Him. While you do your work, you can rest when the work is done. I just want to close with this illustration of of an old uh, Welsh preacher, one of these preachers from Wales over there by Ireland. And in the 19th century, this pastor named Christmas Evans said something that a lot of people got really pumped up about. He said, I'd rather burn out than rust out in the service of the Lord. I'd rather burn out than rust out in the service of the Lord. Yeah, that really gets you fired up, right? I'm just going to burn out. I'm going to go all at it. Or, he says the alternative is you can just rust out. You can just be lazy and old, retire early and just rust out. No, he says, I'm going to burn out rather than rust out in the service of the Lord. And then, Along came one of his fellow pastors, James Berkeley, who said, I admire his bravado. It sounds dedicated, bold, and stirring. However, when I view the burnouts and the almost burnouts who lay by the church roadside, the glory fails to reach me. I don't really see the point in burning out, he says. Isn't there a third alternative to rusting out or burning out? In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul stated, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. James Berkeley said, I want to neither burn out nor rust out. I want to finish the race. Hallelujah. Jesus is teaching us how to run the race well, how to finish the race. Would you come to him and learn from him for whatever resolve and whatever good work he's called you to do? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Will the music team come forward as I pray? I'm just going to do something simple again. I'm going to pray the words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 
1, verses 11 and 12. Because Paul says, I always pray this for you. I'm going to pray it again. Lord, to this end that you might be glorified in your saints and, and that you might glorify us in you, I pray once again that you, God, the Creator, would make us, like you made the world, that you would make us worthy of your calling. And that you fulfill in us every resolve for good. Every intention we have right now after hearing the sermon, every decision we've tried to make, every plan we've made, would you fulfill those plans? And would you fulfill in us every work of faith? Help the work not to just be a four-letter word to us, a burden to us. Help it to be work of faith done by your power. So that the name of Jesus may be glorified in us. And that we would be glorified in Him. Change us, we pray. Make us more like you, Jesus, we pray. Teach us to be gentle and humble in heart, to be hard workers, but to trust God in our work. And we do this all by the grace of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.